Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem, asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. After this interview with Herod, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. The Gospel of Matthew Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and 9 and 10, New Living Translation. But soon a fierce storm came up. High waves were breaking into the boat, and it began to fill with water. When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Silence! Be still! Suddenly the wind stopped, and there was a great calm. Then he asked them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? The disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man? They asked each other. Even the wind and waves obey him. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, verses 37 and 39 through 41. New Living Translation. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth. Brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. Today on Anchored by Truth, we're going to continue our discussion of miracles in the Bible. I'm here today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. Today we want to continue our discussion about the objections that are frequently raised about the biblical accounts of miracles. On our last show, we saw that probably the most common objection against the Bible's accounts of miracles is that miracles are impossible because they violate natural laws. And in our experience, natural laws always govern how energy and matter behave in our universe and world. R.D., would you like to remind us about some of the comments that you made about this objection? Certainly. There are three important points that I think people should keep in mind when they think about this particular objection that miracles are impossible because they point to a violation of natural physical laws. And actually, rather than saying they violate natural physical laws, I prefer the term that what God did was actually just suspend the normal operation of those physical laws. I think it's impossible for the lawmaker, God who set up the physical laws, to violate his laws, but I certainly think it's well within his capacity and frankly within his will to be able to determine when those laws will operate and how those laws will operate. The first point I think people should keep in mind is that natural laws are descriptive, not prescriptive. That is, natural laws tell us how things behave ordinarily, how they behave usually. Natural laws tell us how matter and energy typically behave within the physical creation, within the cosmos. Now, miracles are singular events that were used by God for His specific purposes and as part of His overall plan. Those singular events were always used by God to advance His overall plan of redemption. 
Now, normally the purpose for which God used a miracle was to authenticate a particular person as a messenger of God, as an authentic messenger being sent by him to bring part of his special revelation to his people. So the miracle, which was a supernatural intervention, a suspension of the operation of natural laws at a specific place and a specific time for a specific purpose, helped authenticate the fact that that particular person who performed the miracle had supernatural inspiration standing and authenticating their message that they were bringing. A second point to keep in mind is that whether or not a miracle occurred at a particular place and time is a historical question. So as such, the evidence that supports the historicity of the miracle is historical evidence, as opposed to being evidence that we derive from operational science. So when we look at the potential occurrence of miracles in the past, we need to rely primarily on the strength of the historical evidence for the historicity of the book or the historical accuracy of the writer. Natural laws, by distinction, pertain to operational science. They pertain to things that are repeatable in the current physical universe. But natural laws, because they belong to the realm of operational science, are of far less value when it comes to saying things about origins or past singularities. I mean, if something occurred in the past and it was a singular event, by definition, it's not going to be repeatable. Same thing with an origin. When God brought the universe into existence, he originated it. Well, he's not repeating that activity every day to day. So we cannot know from natural law whether or not any past unusual event ever occurred in history. For instance, Alexander the Great's conquests were unprecedented in their scope and rapidity. They were extremely unusual. At that point in world history, they were unique. They were singular in their character because no one had ever conquered as much territory as Alexander did in such a brief period of time. But that does not mean, because that was a singular event, that Alexander the Great's conquests didn't occur. It simply means that they were unprecedented, but the unprecedented nature doesn't stop the reality. So we look for the evidence of Alexander the Great's conquest to the historical records, to the historicity of the records that were made and the historical reliability of the writers. We look to the historical records where we don't look to operational science to determine whether or not Alexander the Great's conquests occurred as they're recorded in the various documents. The third point that I think people need to keep in mind is that if there is valid historical evidence for the occurrence of one or more miracles, simply doubting that evidence is not itself a form of evidence. Doubt is just that. It's doubt. It's a personal evaluation of a particular body of facts or evidence, but doubt is not in and of itself evidence. Doubt has to do with the person's evaluation of facts or evidence, but the doubt itself has no evidentiary value whatsoever. And just to build on that last thought a bit, even a lot of people doubting evidence does not become evidence. We've talked about on Anchored by Truth that truth is not determined by majority opinion. So it doesn't really matter whether one person or a hundred or a thousand doubt whether a miracle occurred. The really important point is whether or not the historical evidence is valid and substantive. And of course, we recognize that there can be legitimate disagreement about the strength or persuasiveness of any particular body of evidence, but what we need to focus on is the evidence and not just people's opinions of the evidence. So where do we go from here? 
Well, there are two other objections to miracles or forms of objections to miracles that I want to cover today. The first I classify as being non-miraculous miracles. And the second objection is what might be thought of as embellished accounts. Now, the difference between these objections to the traditional view of miracles as being a supernatural intervention by God into the created order is that these two objections, as opposed to the first objection we talked about in our last episode, these two objections try to preserve the nucleus of a biblical account, but what they do is strip the account of its supernatural power or meaning. So the difference, again, just to be clear, between these two objections, non-miraculous miracles or embellished accounts, is that these objections don't say that some historical event didn't occur. They just believe that when that historical event did occur, that it did not involve a suspension of natural law. Now, the first objection, the one that we talked about so much in our first episode on objections to miracles, is that the historical event just never occurred at all, that those things were just myth or fairy tale or fable. These two objections acknowledge that there was a historical event. They just say that that historical event did not possess a supernatural character. So your point is that there are some people who just dismiss the Bible's accounts of miracles as being fantasy stories, akin to a fairy tale or legend. Those critics simply do away with the story altogether, so obviously they've dispensed with any supernatural implications of the story. Whereas the people who see miracles as being embellished accounts of a true event or offering a natural explanation for an unusual event, try to preserve the history but do away with any supernatural attributes of the history. Exactly. Some critics of the Bible's miracles see miracles as being a pious fraud or fiction. Other critics are willing to allow that something unusual did occur, but they stop short of being willing to acknowledge that God supernaturally intervened in his creation. So let's start out with what you mean by embellished accounts. What are you thinking when you say that some people classify biblical miracles as being embellished accounts? Well, people who see miracles as being embellished accounts will usually take a Bible miracle story and they will say that a real event happened, but when the biblical writer recorded the story, that over time that record was enhanced or embellished to make a fairly simple event seem miraculous. Now, let's take, for example, the second of the opening scriptures that we heard for today. We heard the account from Mark in Mark's Gospel about Jesus calming the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Now, people who see that as an embellished account might say, well, there was a storm, but the storm wasn't nearly as bad as Mark made it out to be. That the storm was just a regular storm. Yes, it arose, and yes, it might have arisen quickly, but it was no more dangerous than any bad rainstorm. And the Sea of Galilee is well known for being tempestuous, for having storms that come very quickly and that sometimes disappear very quickly. According to an article on the website ChristianAnswers.net, quote, Such storms result from differences in temperatures between the sea coast and the mountains beyond. The Sea of Galilee lies 680 feet below sea level. It is bounded by hills, especially on the east side, where they reach 2,000 feet. These heights are a source of cool, dry air. Directly around the sea, the climate is semi-tropical with warm, moist air. The large difference in height between surrounding land and the sea causes large temperature and pressure changes. This results in strong winds dropping to the sea, funneling through the hills. 
The Sea of Galilee is small, and those winds may descend directly to the center of the lake with violent results. When the contrasting air masses meet, a storm can arise quickly and without warning. The Sea of Galilee is relatively shallow, just 200 feet at its greatest depth. A shallow lake is whipped up by air more rapidly than deep water, where energy is more readily absorbed, unquote. Yes. Now, this description of the topology from that part of the nation of Israel tells us that Mark's depiction of a storm that could suddenly pose mortal danger to a group of travelers out on the Sea of Galilee is entirely reasonable. Nevertheless, a critic of the story, a critic of the miraculous nature of the story, would say, well, again, as I've said, just a normal Sea of Galilee storm. Potentially violent, yes, came up quickly, yes, but it came up quickly and then just died away quickly, as storms on the Sea of Galilee do. Now, the problem with this kind of an explanation is that the other details of the story just don't permit this to be a valid possibility. Mark says that the disciples were terrified. Now, remember that Jesus' disciples included seasoned fishermen who had fished on the Sea of Galilee their entire lives. They were used to storms on the Sea of Galilee, and they knew how to handle them. So with the fact that the disciples, who were seasoned Sea of Galilee fishermen, were terrified, they knew that this storm was exceedingly dangerous, and maybe even more dangerous than any storm any one of them had ever been through. Also, when Mark says that Jesus calmed the wind and the waves, the disciples became just as terrified of Jesus as they had been of the storm. I mean, they were so terrified of Jesus after he calmed the storm that the disciples said to themselves, What kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. So the disciples' own testimony says that this was not a normal storm and that it was Jesus' direct intervention that calmed the storm. The disciples' own words and behavior tell us that this was not business as usual on the Sea of Galilee. So the notion that Mark just sort of embellished a real account to give it a supernatural character just looks very implausible when you look at all the details of the story. And as we've noted before, Mark wrote his gospel very soon after Jesus' death. And he wrote his gospel in an atmosphere and in a place and time when people were basically very hostile to Christianity. So if Mark had just been making things up to make his gospel a little more interesting or to create embellished accounts to, to make it seem like miracles occurred, it would have been very easy at that time for other observers to dispute the account. Okay, all that makes sense. Some critics think the Bible, miracle accounts, are just embellished accounts of otherwise true events. But what about what you call non-miraculous miracles? Well, sometimes people will try to present a natural explanation for an event that the Bible describes as having a supernatural character. Now, for a sample of this type of criticism, let's look at the first of our opening scriptures of the account of the wise men, or the Magi, visiting Jesus at the time of his birth. The wise men were guided to Jesus' location by a star. Now, some advocates of the natural explanation for miracles crowd. Natural explanation for miracles crowd? Really? Okay, let's phrase it this way. Observers who want to strip the supernatural character from the Bible's miracle stories. Okay? Anyway... I've read various explanations that say that this moving, super bright star that was guiding the wise men, guiding the Magi, was actually just a natural event that was caused by the convergence of various heavenly bodies. These various heavenly bodies are normally separate and distinct in the night sky, 
But the convergence of these bodies at a particular time, at a particular point in history, just produced an extraordinarily bright light in the night sky. Some astronomers have speculated that it was the convergence of the planets Jupiter and Saturn. Another theory that I've seen offered is that this might have been the very first sighting of the planet Uranus. And others would say, well, this was a comet that just happened to be moving through the night sky at that particular time. And some people have even said that it might have been a very early appearance of Halley's Comet. Well, any of those would seem to be a plausible explanation for the sudden appearance of a super bright object in the night sky. But you don't favor any of those explanations, do you? No, I don't. Again, the details of the star that guided the Magi are inconsistent with the behavior of normal stellar objects. Note that the scripture says the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and had stopped over the place where the child was. So this wasn't a star that just sort of appeared and then shone steadily out like a lighthouse beacon and the Magi saw it and just sort of followed it. The story indicates that the star actually moved ahead of them and that it stopped specifically over where Jesus was. So the fact that the star did this, that's not very consistent with any heavenly bodies that we normally observe in the night sky. Now, how God produced that effect, I confess I have no idea. It may be that God was supernaturally affecting the movement or one or more of his stellar objects for his intended purpose, that of guiding the wise men. It also could be that God somehow just altered the light that was coming from heavenly objects and he just focused that light so it appeared as a star guiding the wise men. I don't know which laws of physics that God superintended or how he intervened in his creation. That is, after all, the province of God. But however God did it, I think that the details of the story give us a clear indication that this was a supernatural intervention by God into the affairs of his creation for a specific redemptive purpose, that of ensuring that the wise men would be present at Jesus' birth. And I think it's important here that we take note of two other elements of the description of this particular miracle. We understand, and from the point of our advanced science, that there is a physical difference, chemical difference, between stars, planets, comets, etc. We understand that those are distinct stellar objects, all with their own characteristics and attributes. But when the Bible uses the term star here, it's not trying to make a specific declaration about physics. The term is being used what's called phenomenologically. And that's just a fancy way of saying that the Bible is using a term to describe how a viewer in that location and at that time would have seen the object. The Bible is not trying to make a distinction between a star that produces its own light and heat from nuclear fusion and, say, a planetary or moon-like body that just reflects light. The Bible is not trying to make that kind of a distinction. It's just saying that a bright light that appears in the night is a star. And again, that's a phenomenological description. And that's exactly how we speak today. We frequently use the term star to describe bright nighttime objects, even though technically we know that that body may actually be a planet or even a moon or even possibly a visible distant galaxy. The second point that I think we need to take note of that there is absolutely no need whatsoever to conclude that God created this astronomical body just for this occasion. As I said before, I don't know how God intervened supernaturally in the affairs of his creation to produce the star that guided the Magi, but God didn't have to create a star just for this occasion. He could have done a variety of things with his physical creation to produce the same effect for the benefit of the Magi. 
God often will make use of existing parts of his creation for special purposes when it suits him, just like when he had the east wind part the Red Sea so the Israelites could cross and escape from the Egyptians that were pursuing them. In other words, God might have used existing planets, comets, or something else to create the moving star. But even if he did so, he did it to give the wise men time to ride to Bethlehem from their starting location, likely a period of weeks or even months. He also used those objects to give direction to a very precise location at a very specific period of time. As someone once said, even if God used the wind to part the Red Sea for the Hebrews to cross, the miracle would have been that he did it at exactly the right time. Exactly. Now, I understand that when people try to find natural explanations for the Bible's miracle accounts, that it's normally because they're trying to respect the text of the scripture, and that's a positive motive. But I think that that approach has some danger. Trying to defend scripture would seem to be a good thing. What kind of danger do you see arising from that? Well, first, if we're going to start looking for natural explanations for every miracle in the Bible, we're going to hit some pretty big roadblocks fairly quickly. I mean, how do you come up with a natural explanation for the appearance of a chariot of fire being drawn by horses of fire when Elijah was transported to heaven on a whirlwind? Or Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead after Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. When Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, she had been dead for only a matter of minutes or hours, so it's possible the bystanders only thought she had died. But Lazarus had been buried and in the tomb for days, so the likelihood he had only fainted or passed out is beyond remote. Yes. So there are some miracles in the Bible that are simply beyond reasonable attempts and natural explanations. But even worse, when we try to excise all the supernatural character from the events in the Bible, again, we begin to cast doubt on many of the details of the Bible's miracle stories. This then, as we've talked about before, begins to erode the historicity of the Bible, so we then have to surrender claims for the inspiration, inerrancy, and infallibility of Scripture. We also begin to deny God's omnipotent sovereignty, because when we imply that God can't just intercede in His creation at times of His own choosing, we're saying basically that God has some limitations in what He can do. Well, God doesn't have any limitations insofar as it comes to manipulating the attributes of his own creation. That's part of him being omnipotent. So, quite without meaning to, I think that the well-intended explanations that try to find natural explanations for the Bible miracle accounts, I think they come dangerously close to impugning God's attributes while they are trying to defend or explain God's words. So, those kind of attempts run the risk of diminishing God's superintending glory because they imply that God isn't interested or can't watch over the affairs of his people closely enough to provide help and relief when his people need it. I sort of become concerned that this is a way of putting God into a box where we feel more comfortable with him because we understand or we can determine explanations for things that otherwise would just be mysterious to us. And that's a great point. God does things that are sometimes mysterious to men. But the Bible is filled with expressions of awe from believers of great faith who came to the realization that sometimes we must surrender comprehension to simple adoration. In Psalm 8, David expressed this sentiment well when he said, quote, What is man that you are mindful of him? Unquote. After Jesus provided the evidence of his resurrection that doubting Thomas had demanded, 
all Thomas could do was exclaim, My Lord and my God. It's not that we shouldn't see greater understanding of God and His works, but sometimes we are forced to proclaim Amen to God's declaration in Isaiah 55.8 that, quote, My ways are far beyond anything you could imagine, unquote. God said this to Isaiah who, at the start of his ministry, had been given a detailed vision of the throne room of God. Imagine how much better Isaiah comprehended God's magnificence than any of us probably do. He had been in the very throne room of God. Yet God had told Isaiah that he didn't have the capacity to imagine the ways of God. This was God's way of reminding Isaiah that God cannot be reduced to some kind of manageable concept whose mysteries we can penetrate with our finite limitations. Surely some of those ways of God include his deeds that we call miracles. Yes. People who see the Bible's miracles as being authentic historical events, but susceptible to a natural explanation that doesn't require the suspension of natural law, they inadvertently try to preserve the fruit of the word without acknowledging the root of the Christian faith. The first verse of the Bible says that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So right there at the opening of the Bible, we find a God who is able to create our entire cosmos out of nothing, or as it's sometimes said, ex nihilo. The Bible unambiguously declares God's omnipotence, omniscience, and sovereignty right at the start. And that's what we have to keep in mind whenever we come to challenging parts of Scripture. The Bible's accounts of miracles challenge our understanding of how the created universe works but they are entirely consistent with our understanding, as the book of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11.3, that we know that what can be seen was made out of what cannot be seen. As remarkable as it is, the created universe is not the entirety of what exists. There are things that exist beyond what we can perceive within the created universe. And the Bible's miracle accounts testify to that fact. Now granted, it takes faith to accept that fact, but it is a faith that is firmly grounded in logic, reason, and evidence. You cannot preserve the essence of the Christian faith without accepting the existence of the supernatural. So the main point is that someone who wants to remove the supernatural attributes from Scripture is on a hopeless quest. God never intended for us to limit our understanding of how He operates His universe to those elements of the universe that can be seen or felt or measured. He is transcendent, above, beyond, and behind the created order, and He refuses to let our limitations affect how He chooses to interact with His universe or within the history of mankind. Sounds like a perfect time to close with a prayer. Since so many of our children are starting their new academic year and getting very close to taking tests as part of their education, today let's listen to a prayer for those who need a little extra help in preparation for and taking tests. Prayer Before Taking a Test Heavenly Father, you have been so good and kind to me. I praise your name because you are worthy to be praised. You rule the universe, yet you love us so much that you care about the parts of even our daily lives that trouble us. Thank you for being a merciful Father who carries our burdens. Lord, you know I have a test coming that has been weighing on my heart. 
I know that tests are a part of learning and education. You know so well that tests can be very difficult for some of your children, including me. Lord, I pray that you would help me with this test. I pray you would help me to prepare effectively for the test. Help me to take advantage of all the books, study aids, and guides that I can find. Direct me to my fellow students, teachers, or friends who have an understanding in this area and who can assist me. Please defeat any tendencies I have towards discouragement or fear because these are the tools of the enemy. When I am in the test, please send the Holy Spirit to bring to my mind all that I have learned. Keep me calm and help me to focus on simply doing my best. My joy and hope are in Jesus. I pray and give thanks in his precious name. Amen. We'd like to remind our audience that a lot of our radio episodes are linked together in series of topics. So if they've missed any episodes, or if they just want to hear one again, all of these episodes are available on your favorite podcast app. To find them, just search on Anchored by Truth by Crystal Sea Books. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.